I'm Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today, I'm going to focus exclusively on the Zika virus. Coming up, two virologists talk about their work with the Zika virus. No longer confined to the tropics where it emerged in Brazil last year, but now it's spreading in Florida. The Zika virus exploded in Latin America, affecting thousands since being identified in Brazil just over a year ago. And this week, Florida health officials confirmed the first cases of local transmission. That means people were infected in Florida, not traveling overseas. A new study published online this week in the journal Science showed that three different vaccines provided strong protection from the virus in monkeys. These results bolster optimism for a human vaccine. The first round of clinical trials, aimed at ensuring safety rather than efficacy, began last month. Although large numbers of previously infected and thus immune people could reduce the benefits from a vaccine, researchers do believe the outbreak has not yet peaked. Add another line to your vaccination card if you're traveling overseas or to Florida. Last week, the Food and Drug Administration issued its environmental assessment, approving a field trial to test the safety of genetically modified, that's GM, mosquitoes on a Florida Key. When GM mosquitoes mate with wild mosquitoes, the offspring die before they're able to reproduce. The total mosquito population is thereby reduced, and the spread of diseases carried by those mosquitoes, such as dengue, chikungunya, and possibly Zika, are also reduced. In field trials, experimental releases of GM mosquitoes reduced the populations by about 90% within six to nine months. In one treated location, incidence of dengue fever fell by 90%. In the Florida Keys, public comments were overwhelmingly opposed to the release, and in November, residents of the Keys will vote in a non-binding referendum on whether or not to proceed with the field trial. Locally, at the Boulder Bookstore, Liz Henneke will speak about and sign her new book, Outdoor Science Lab for Kids, this Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. And starting this Thursday, CU Boulder will host the National Ancestral Health Society, a community of scientists, healthcare professionals, and citizens who collaborate to understand health challenges from an evolutionary perspective. Find out more by searching for Ancestral Health Symposium and we will provide a link to it on our website. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bennett. Last week, I spoke with Dr. Ann Power, who is Chief of Virology Activity in the Division of Vector-Borne Diseases at the CDC. Dr. Ann Powers, thank you for joining me today to talk about Zika virus, which I think is on people's minds a lot because of the advent of the Summer Olympics and also these new outbreaks in Florida. So maybe you can start by telling us briefly about what the CDC is doing with respect to the Zika virus. 
Hi, Beth. It's good to talk with you. So Zika virus, you're right, is something that's definitely on everybody's mind right now. Um, it's a mosquito-transmitted virus primarily, and it's very closely related to other viruses like dengue virus or West Nile virus, which people in the Americas have certainly heard about. Um, it's unusual in that it causes these very severe birth defects, which we've not seen with any of the related flaviviruses before, and Zika is a member of what's called the flaviviridae group. So we are trying to understand exactly why it's causing this and um, being able to diagnose cases very readily um, because most people who get infected with Zika will not even know they were sick. Um, about 80% of the people are asymptomatic, show no signs or symptoms and only about 20% actually do get sick. Those who do usually get a very mild illness. It's a mild fever, very low-grade fever. They might have joint pain. They might have what's called conjunctivitis, where their eyes get red. Um, but they're mild symptoms, and they usually pass within just a few days. They'll get a rash. Um, again, the real problem is for women who are pregnant, because the virus can actually cross from the mom to the baby through the placenta. And if the baby gets infected at certain points during the um, pregnancy cycle, it can actually cause these very severe birth defects, one of which is called microcephaly, where the head of the baby is actually much smaller than it should be. And going along with that, of course, is very severe neurologic deficits. They have um, developmental problems and such. So um, it is quite significant in that particular population, yet in most people it causes no problems at all. And so it doesn't matter if you are an asymptomatic um, infected individual, you could still pass that virus on to somebody and they could get extremely sick. Or if they were a pregnant woman, their child, their unborn child could become microcephalic. That's all true. So even if you're showing no symptoms, if you get bit by a mosquito that can take the virus up in, and then the virus has to go through the mosquito and be transmitted by the mosquito, um, it can still be passed on even if you never showed any symptoms. Now, there's a lot of things we don't know about Zika that we're still trying to figure out. For example, if you're a pregnant woman and do become infected, what is the odds or the likelihood that your baby would become infected. And if your baby does become infected, which is probably a small percent, what is the likelihood that it would have some kind of developmental problem? So there's a lot of things we're still trying to understand to really ascertain what the risk is. Um, and every day we get a little bit more information. So uh, we update our website daily, cdc.gov, www.cdc.gov. And you can basically go on there and check. If you look on that first page, there'll be a big Zika banner. And literally daily, there's updates on what we know about Zika. So really, because we don't know a lot about um, how the disease works in people, the best thing that you can do is avoid getting bitten by mosquitoes in areas where the infection is occurring. Yeah, that's exactly right. So uh, one of the things on our website we post is areas where there is active transmission. And if you're a pregnant woman, you know, we certainly recommend not going to areas where there's known transmission going on while you're pregnant during the pregnancy. Um, if you absolutely have to go, you know, take extra precautions to avoid being bitten by mosquitoes. Wear insect repellent, stay in hotels and buildings that have screened windows and use air conditioning. Um, wear long pants and long sleeves if you have to be outside. So there's things you can do to help protect yourself, um, starting with not traveling to those areas while you're pregnant. 
And is there any progress on a vaccine yet? Yeah, that's another great question. There's a lot of interest, of course, in developing a vaccine and a number of candidates that are being put together by researchers at CDC, at NIH, at academia, um, and industry, and everybody's looking at putting that together, a vaccine together very quickly. Um, There's some clinical trials that are being planned for as early as this fall. Um, Obviously, it's a process to make sure it's a safe vaccine, make sure that nobody gets sick from the vaccine itself, and to make sure it's effective. So these things take a little bit of time, but there are some good candidates in the in the works. Right. Well, that's encouraging. And is there any evidence that uh, the Zika virus is carried by other mosquitoes besides the infamous Aegypti mosquito that currently is the culprit? That is, that is one of the culprits. Um, there's another mosquito that's closely related. It's called Aedes albopictus. Um, the Asian tiger mosquito, if you've heard of that one. Oh, yes, they're bad guys, too. <laughs> they are, indeed. And, and they're also capable of transmitting Zika virus. And we don't know which one is a better vector, but um, better to avoid places where those are both exist if you, again, are pregnant and or thinking about becoming pregnant. So, um, you know, again, there's a lot we're trying to do in terms of looking at controlling these vectors, looking at patterns of insecticide resistance so we know what best to treat these affected areas with are so we can get rid of the mosquitoes. So a lot of research going on and a lot of efforts to find as many ways to control the spread of the disease as we can. Well, we will link to your website, the CDC website, for people that would like to pursue this. Thank you for talking to us. Oh, thank you. That was Dr. Ann Power talking about her role at the CDC, where her work focuses on aspects of both the virus and the mosquito, including identification of components affecting viral virulence, field-based ecology and surveillance projects, and emergency preparedness response activities. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, and I'm Beth Bennett. On the phone with me this morning is Dr. Rashika Pereira. Dr. Pereira works at the CSU Foothills campus studying how dengue, chikungunya, yellow fever, and Zika viruses behave in their mosquito hosts, specifically in the midgut of the mosquito. Good morning, Rishika. Good morning, Beth. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. We know that mosquitoes, specifically this one species, Aedes aegypti, are key in transmitting Zika. And you've been working on their interaction. What have you found out about that interaction between the host, the mosquito host, and the virus? Yes, so many of these viruses uh, have to go into the mosquito once they take a blood meal from from an infected human. And then they have to replicate in the midgut, which is kind of the stomach of the mosquito. And it's only after they replicate that they can actually spread throughout the mosquito and then get to the salivary glands where then when the mosquito bites a new uh, human, uh, can transmit the virus again. So this process takes about 7 to 10 days uh, before the virus gets spread uh, through the mosquito, and then it can transmit again. So what we are studying is um, the interactions between the virus and the mosquito. So sometimes these viruses require lots of um, uh, biochemicals from the mosquito, so like lipids, like cholesterol or triglycerides that we are very familiar with, to actually replicate. 
And so we're studying how we can block the virus in the mid-gut and prevent its transmission. So you could apply some kind of drug, for instance, that would affect mosquitoes and alter their ability maybe to make some of these lipids, and that would then restrict the virus in the mosquito. Yes, that's the the goal, and um, they've they've had some success in this type of model with malaria, where uh, humans will take a drug that doesn't affect them, but when the mosquito bites the human that has taken the drug, the mosquito then either dies or is unable to uh, transmit malaria. So we're trying to find a similar model, but in this case, focusing on lipids, and lots of biochemical pathways in the mosquito that might be helping the virus. And then the idea is to use a, a drug or a, some type of vaccine that will block these biochemical pathways from actually helping the virus to replicate. So in fact, what you do is you use the humans almost as a reverse vector to transmit that agent to the mosquitoes. Yes, yes, that's the idea. And so, uh, because in many of these countries, as much as you might want to try to prevent being bitten by a mosquito, it's practically impossible, right? Right. So, the idea is, can we, uh, and, and many of these countries are doing pretty well in terms of mosquito control. I've, I've seen quite a bit of progress. But the idea is, if we cannot completely control mosquito populations, can we still prevent the virus from being transmitted to humans and prevent the spread of the disease. So and and these, these Egypti mosquitoes, I've heard that they're just everywhere. They're little and they can get through some nets and they're resistant to some insecticides and they're out during the day too, not just at night. Yes, so they're most active at dawn and dusk and the problem is that many of the the countries that are uh, that have dengue and chikungunya and zika um, disease have open houses many of them don't have good screens on their windows the houses are architecturally built to have open space and the communities are very used to this so making a cultural change is going to be difficult and what and about so, yeah um, s- sorry what about persuading people to take these drugs or be vaccinated so that they can express um, an agent or, you know, a chemical that you talk about that could then impact the mosquito. Do you think there'd be resistance to that? I think there will be some, but many people, for instance, take, in these countries, take worm medicine, right? Mm, so, yes. Um, you know, it's, so if you, I think it takes talented communication <laughs> yes. and explaining to the people of the benefits of uh, this, and obviously, you know, uh, you can succeed to an extent, but there's going to be some resistance. But many of these, I just um, traveled to Sri Lanka where uh, Zika is not there yet, but it's rampant with dengue, and um, many people are very scared. Their children are getting infected. Now the adults are getting infected, and many of them um, go into dengue hemorrhagic fever because they've been exposed to dengue before. And so they're very interested in actually participating in reducing mosquito transmission and mosquito um, breeding. So they, they do a great job in terms of 
taking care of their houses and making sure there's no uh, open containers of water or coconut shells with water collecting. And then the government also comes by and checks your houses all the time. Also, there's a there's a big community effort to reduce the mosquito population already. Yes, and I think, uh, I mean, I was quite impressed with the efforts that Sri Lanka, you know, Sri Lanka is a small country, but they've succeeded in communicating well with the community and reminding them of the importance of being involved in um, controlling mosquito breeding, and I think it's going really well because um, now there's very few deaths with hemorrhagic fever. They've also educated the communities that because they are in a dengue endemic area, if you get fever, go to the clinic because then they can immediately diagnose you for dengue or not. So this is remarkable to me that this group of viruses, the flaviviruses, includes such disparate diseases as dengue and Zika. Is there any anything known about these viruses that would explain how they could cause such different symptoms? Um, in terms of uh, one of the biggest things with dengue is the um, antibody-dependent enhancement. So if you there's four strains of dengue, and if you get infected with one strain, you get antibodies against it, and you will recover. It will be a very painful uh, fever, etc. But then if you get infected with a different strain, say at a different season, the antibodies that you raised against the first strain enhances infection of the second strain. Oh, gosh. And now that, yeah, so this is a problem, especially in endemic countries where all four strains are known to circulate. So people have been exposed to different types of strains. Oh, and yeah. So, and now they're discovering that some of these antibodies that are raised against dengue may also enhance Zika infection. And so this is a problem. Uh, it's a huge problem. And um, it's not clear why. I think we're still trying to figure out how Zika causes, um, you know, for instance, sexual transmission and uh, such heavy birth defects, whereas dengue doesn't or hasn't been reported to. Um, I think we're still early in the game and we don't understand a lot, but there's a significant effort by the scientific community to try to discover this. Right. So let's come back to that in just a moment. And for our listeners, if you're just joining us, this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, and I'm Beth Bennett. I'm speaking with Dr. Rashika Pereira about the role of the mosquito in transmitting the Zika virus. And she just mentioned that in some of the other related viruses, exposure to one strain might predispose you to adverse effects when infected with another strain. So that suggests the possibility that if you get Zika and you've been exposed to another related virus, like for instance, dengue, you could have a different set of symptoms than somebody who hasn't been exposed. Does that, is that correct, Rashika? That's, that's where the thought is going right now. Um, you know, because Zika has been, has been around for a long time. Uh, it was isolated in, nine, in the 1940s in Africa. And um, since there was no one looking for associated symptoms, it's difficult to say that they didn't exist. But it's also been around in Thailand, and I don't think there was a huge... Um, uh, I guess, uh, report of Guillain-Barre syndrome or microcephaly, um, which is the, uh, which is, which are the birth defect, uh, which is a birth defect that is now being um, diagnosed in uh, Latin America. 
So I think it's not really clear yet, but that's where the thought is going. Yes, that's kind of a frightening thought. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's go back to to your work specifically, because this is a novel idea also to me that the virus actually needs lipids to replicate. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. And it's uh, it's so many of these viruses, they don't carry a lot of um, packages. They don't package much in their shells. Outside of a host outside of the mosquito or uh, outside of the human, it's basically almost uh, non-functional or inert. But once it gets inside the host, it needs a lot of nutrients, for instance, to compete with the immune system of the host, etc. And it needs a lot of lipids to uh, replicate in the host. And this is true of the virus replicating in the human as well as in the mosquito. And what's amazing is that some of these requirements are the same in the mosquito versus the human, and some of them are different. So we're really interested in looking at this in detail. So if you look at an infected cell, for instance, with these viruses, they cause a severe rearrangement of the inside of the cell. So it looks very different to a cell that's not infected. And many of these changes are associated with membranes in the cell. And These viruses are membrane viruses, so they acquire a membrane from the host, uh, the human or the mosquito, but uh, it seems like it changes a lot of the lipid repertoire inside the human cell or the mosquito cell in order to replicate and to provide these membranes. And the idea, part of the idea is that it wants to hide from the immune system. Yes. And part... Part of the idea is that it wants to use some of these membranes to make new virus particles. And so does the fact that the Zika virus uses some of our membranes, then that allows it to evade our immune system because it looks like our cells? Right. That um, for the most part, it's the immune system, you know, detects, uh, say, when a virus enters a cell, there's signals that go off saying there's a foreign uh, agent inside the cell, and then the immune system immediately gets activated. But what the virus is doing is once it gets inside a cell, if it hides in these membranes, the immune system can't detect it. So that signal or that red light saying there's a foreign agent inside your cell doesn't go off. Right, and that might make it hard also to develop drugs that would act on the virus once it's in your body because it's packaged up in human membrane or human-derived membranes. Yes, and so the idea is whether we can penetrate some of these membranes that are inside the cell where the virus is replicating. It's almost like a viral replication factory inside your cells because it's bound by these membranes, and so you have to be able to penetrate that with a drug or something uh, that you want to, so that you can reduce the virus replication. And what about in mosquitoes? Do they have an immune response to the virus as well, or does the virus completely evade that because of this ability to package itself up in host-derived membranes? The mosquitoes do have a response. They don't have a cellular response, but they have a, so as soon as they see a virus, they they activate other signals like the RNAi pathway 
that uh, tends to limit the viral replication in the mosquito. But what is really interesting is that the mosquito doesn't get sick, or at least as far as we know. It doesn't show any symptoms of infection. And so uh, I think to date, people don't really understand why that is. And one of the biggest um, areas that is unexplored that my lab is trying to explore is what are these biochemical changes that are happening in the mosquito that might prevent it from getting sick but still uh, assist the virus uh, uh, by allowing it to replicate. That's a really intriguing thought that we can learn something from this mosquito in terms of possibly alleviating human symptoms. Yes. It's it's a very, and uh, the biochemistry is where we have to go, and this is where the, you know, the research has to go in the future is because if you understand the biochemistry of the mosquito uh, and these biochemical changes, you can also understand why a mosquito becomes resistant to certain insecticides as well. So it's very global in terms of how much we can learn if we look at the biochemical changes that happen in the mosquito. Uh, Yet another example of how basic research can provide so many benefits to our world. Absolutely. Yes. Well, that was fascinating. Thank you so much, Rushika. We enjoyed talking to you immensely. Thank you, Beth. Thank you for having me. You are quite welcome. That was Dr. Rushika Pereira talking about metabolic pathways in the mosquitoes she studies to identify molecular choke points, if you will, that can be exploited to eventually block mosquito-human viral transmission and disease. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by me, Beth Bennett, and engineered by Maeve Conran. Additional contributions from Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Sean Cudi and Egypt 80. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and the websites we mentioned on this show. You can also subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.